Restrictions may apply. Plans and costs for coverage may vary. Call Protect My Car for details. In these hard economic times, you've got to do whatever you can to save money. One of our biggest expenses can be our cars, especially when unexpected repair bills hit. Not anymore. If you do own a car, truck, or SUV made from $19.99 or higher, you could stop paying for car repairs. That's right. You might not have to pay a penny to have it repaired. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if you qualify. You must have an automobile made from $19.99 or higher, and all repairs. Repairs for your engine, transmission, and much more can become a thing of the past. Dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone today and get your car protected before your next repair bill hits. That's right. Total protection for your car and no more repair bills. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if your car qualifies. That's star star 1149. Never pay for car repairs again. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now. Dial star star 1149. This is Pierce Allman from the Texas School Book Depository Building for WFAA News. Just a few minutes ago, the President of the United States turned from Houston Street onto Elm Street on his way to a scheduled luncheon appearance at the Stemmons Trademark. And as he went by the Texas School Book Depository, headed for the triple underpass, there were three loud reverberating explosions. Nobody moved. Everyone seemed stunned. A few seemed to look around, wondering who has the firecrackers. Then suddenly the Secret Service men sprang into action. The convertible bearing the President and Mrs. Kennedy sped away, and officers, both plainclothes and uniformed, seemed to spring from everywhere at once, guns drawn, ordering people to lie flat. There are two witnesses who were near the President's car at the time of the explosions who say that shots were fired from which upper window we do not know. We do not and cannot confirm the reports at this time that the President has been shot. One witness says he definitely was shot, that he was hit twice, that he saw the President slump in his seat. As I say, this is not confirmed at this time. From where I am, the police have two witnesses. They are bringing them in now. I'm in the Texas School Book Depository Building. They're bringing some witnesses in now. We will try to learn further and relay word to the station. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 87 of the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is Rob Clark, your host, 
And today, I bring to you, I'm proud to bring to you part two of my Richard Gilbride interview. And in this part, we will start dissecting his article, Inside Job, uh, and all about the uh, Texas School Book Depository workers and what they could have possibly been up to on November 22nd, 1963. Because when you take the time to actually compare uh, what they've said over the years, what they said to the Warren Commission, what they said in their first day uh, interviews and testimony, it contradicts each other a lot and it changes a lot. So you have to wonder why. Why why do the people who work there do the things they do that day? Uh, why could some of them possibly be lying about what they were doing that day? And uh, we're going to examine all that in part two today. And then next week, we'll bring you part three. And uh, then after that, we're going to be at the anniversary of the assassination already. It's already November. Uh, you know, we're about two weeks away from the anniversary. I can't believe it's here already. So if you haven't made plans yet, uh, Lancer is having a conference in Dallas this year on the anniversary uh, with lots of great speakers. Uh, so if you're heading that way, make sure you head over to the conference there. And my friends from the ROKC in Australia are having their JFK conference the weekend of the assassination. So if you are uh, heading to Australia, make sure you look them up and take them in and you can hear... Greg Parker, he's uh, came in at the last minute. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna be speaking there. So, uh, but here's my friends at the ROKC giving you more information on where you can get your tickets. Okay, and I will be right back with Richard Gilbride in part two of Inside Job. This is a very dangerous and uncertain world. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy. Certainly not in this decade and perhaps not in this century. The ROKC, Reopen the Kennedy Case, proudly presents the first-ever Australian JFK Conference in Melbourne, Australia, this November. Join us on a quest for justice and truth with inspirational speakers and some of the world's leading authorities on the Kennedy assassination. Featured guest speakers include Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination speaker and acclaimed author James DiEugenio, Gail Nix Jackson, author and granddaughter of Orville Nix, and Australia's very own Peter Morris. For more info, buy your tickets at stickytickets.com slash reopen Kennedy case conference because justice is never too late. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the show. This is the Lone Gummin Podcast. I am Rob Clark, your host, and back on the show this week, part two, uh, my guest, Richard Gilbride, author of Matrix for Assassination and uh, author of many articles that can be found on the Internet and at the ROKC forum. And we're going to be talking about one of his new articles today that he has written, and that is called Inside Job. And you're not going to want to miss it, so don't tune out, don't turn the dial, don't turn it down, don't take a break. Richard, welcome back, sir. How you doing? Oh, really good to be here. Um, so yeah, uh, the first section is entitled uh, "Down the Steps at 12:34." So I mean, the uh, the idea was that the Law Commission wanted to give me the idea that uh, Oswald went to the depository at 12:33, and uh, I can quote right here. 
says, uh, uh, um, after leaving Mrs. Reed in the front office, Oswald Cooper had gone down the stairs and out the front door by 1233, three minutes after the shooting. Right. And they, um, so, uh, I think that they're trying to, uh, get him out, out the building and onto a bus. I think that's the, uh, the motive for them. But if you look carefully at this, um, he actually had some interactions on the front landing. It would have taken him another minute, and it makes all the difference in the world. Right. And, um, so when I looked at this, Welcome Barnett is the officer, the patrolman, who was stationed up between the depository and the Dalpex, right on Houston Street. He ran to the back, and then, um, he ran back to the intersection, and, uh, he estimated it was about two and a half or three minutes uh, before he got on the front landing. Uh, three at the most is what he said. And uh, he had guarded the, the front entrance there until 3 p.m. But he didn't mention this in his after action report, which he did not file until um, July 16th. Uh, <laughs> which is, you know, a long, long time. Yeah. And, um, uh, so he was asked uh, on his July 23rd testimony, did you let anybody out of the building after you got there? He said, no, sir, until they were authorized. So in other words, he um, was probably somebody that you let out of the building was authorized to leave. But he didn't uh, deny um, seeing Oswald because he had seen his picture in the paper and whatnot, and uh, he denied completely that he had seen Oswald. And, uh, so there was a, um, uh, contrary story that got, um, overheard by Detective Ed Hicks. Now, Ed Hicks was a, um, uh, worked in the auto theft bureau and he only started work at, uh, 3 p.m. that day. So he must have heard this second hand. But what he heard was that Oswald came out the front door of the Red Brick Warehouse, a policeman asked him where he was going. Oswald said he should want to see what the excitement was all about. We also get a story from the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, Oswald walked through the door of the warehouse and stopped by a policeman. Oswald told the policeman that worked here. When another employee confirmed that he did, the policeman let Oswald walk away. Hmm. And so you get, you get further corroboration from, uh, the postal inspector, Harry Holmes, who sat in on the, um, Sunday, morning interrogation of Oswald. And he said that Oswald had said, police officer stop, stop me, just before I got to the front door, started to ask me some questions. And my superintendent of the place stepped up and told the officers that I am one of the employees. So here we have um, a superintendent and a policeman that Oswald was bumping into on the front landing. Yeah, this sounds like a familiar story, but the wrong place, right? James Dahman, the checker, um, who, uh, when he was interviewed by the HSCA, um, and he um, then actually run, started to run out the building. He had stopped. Now to go back inside. And then uh, I quote him and says, uh, after we, we was inside the building, after that, I heard that Oswald had come down from the office, come down the front stairs, and he was stopped by the officer that stopped us. That's back in the building. Mr. Shelley told him that was all right, that he worked here, 
so then he proceeded on out of the building. There was a Billy Lovelady standing up there. He was on the step seat. And Oswald was coming out the door, and he said the police stopped Oswald. Billy Lovelady said that Mr. Shelley from the policeman, and Oswald was all right. They worked there. So Oswald walked on down the stairs. So that's, um, there's only four sources that, that you can talk about a policeman, or three of them that talk about a, uh, a superintendent that are on the landing there. So that's, that's quite a bit of, um, you know, that's a pretty rich uh, vein that yeah. is uh, indicating that's probably the truth. Right. And, and, and very different from the official story, you know, that we've, that we've been told all this time, you know. Well, yeah, absolutely, because you get the idea that Oswald just split right off the bat. And um, the, what's the kicker here is that uh, Barnett, uh, Walker Barnett's still alive, and he went to one of the 50th anniversary conferences. And at that, he said, I looked at the man who shot the president walk out the front door. So in other words, he's saying he's letting, he let me Harvey Oswald walk out the front door. He realizes this. He acknowledges it, but um, if he had said that back in 1964, the investigation would have just been uh, completely different. Yeah. Completely changed the whole course. So we have um, something else that helps us um, pin the time on this thing, which is um, Pierce Alvin, uh WFA uh, radio Right. And went up into the building looking for a phone. And I, I traced through his um his itinerary and uh, the timing of him getting there. And I'm not gonna I'm, I'm gonna make sure I work at that and not go through the details of that. But it's funny, you can look at it carefully and uh, you get it um see the measured distances he traveled and stuff pretty accurately. And um uh, I think you get between 15 seconds say, when, uh, you know, your margin of error is when he arrived in there. And uh, what the, uh, um, the person who first recorded this um, interaction, uh, Secret Service Inspector Thomas Kelly, he had also been at that Sunday morning meeting. He said that Oswald, um, well, he encountered this um, young Ku Klux man. He thought he was Secret Service, and that he had actually he pointed toward the payphone in the building. He saw the man actually go to the phone before he left. So Oswald was inside the lobby, looking through the glass inside the warehouse, and watching Pierce Almond go to a phone. Right. And um, we can really the, the thing is that um, the network timestamps Pierce Almond's uh, broadcast at twelve thirty four. Even though we took a little bit of uh, had a little trouble connecting to a station, uh, we can we can really be sure that at twelve thirty three, Oswald is, is inside the lobby watching him go to the phone. So he still has he walks to the landing and encounters the policeman and William Shelley and Billy Rubley out there. So and there's another two curious guys that. Their first day testimony differs greatly from what they told the Warren Commission. Well, the thing is, they want to get him on a bus. Right. And uh, at this point, I, I, I backtracked to, uh, see, Howard Brennan had run up to a Barnett earlier on. I backtracked, and, and then there's some interesting stuff. Um, Howard Brennan is very underrated as far as a witness, because he was the one that, uh, the 
Law Commission relied on for a kind of a, a small city uh, description of what the sniper looked like. And uh, but he had some interesting stuff to say because he had gone home and his, uh, his wife and grandson had said they had seen him on TV and almost positive that um, Oswald had been on, had, that the TV had captured Oswald coming down the steps. But the problem was, and, and when Brennan went to testify, he expected that the Warren Commission would have this footage. Right. And, it, and the problem was, he was being harassed by a, uh, Brennan was being harassed by a, uh, a TV and a radio guy, and he was trying to get away from that. So he thought for sure that he had missed Oswald coming out. He wouldn't have, Oswald was not in the sniper's nest, so he wouldn't have recognized him. But the thing was that, He'd been on the steps uh, on TV during those first couple of minutes, and um, probably we would have uh, gotten a picture of uh, Oswald leaving the building. And Brennan blamed the uh, FBI guy named Robert Lish for editing out that particular segment. And uh, this was looked into in uh, 1967 by uh, one of the early photo researchers, Richard Sprague. And he had phoned that station, which is an independent station, KTVT. And uh, he was told it was all lost, lost on the cutting room floor. Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, this, you know, that would have um, helped us determine, you know, just what, what happened on the landing when Oswald West. And we obtained the whole story. Um, so I kind of, that kind of, um, Smooth the transition into the next section I have, which is called William, William Shelley Betrayal and Perjury. So I start out there, um, you have uh, Oswald explaining to the FBI in his first interrogation that he went outside and he stood around for five or ten minutes with Foreman Bill Shelley. And based upon the remarks of Bill Shelley, he did not believe it was going to be any more work that day. So he left. And, uh, we didn't get to hear that uh, until after Oswald was dead, unfortunately. This was uh, the FBI agent James Bookout's uh, solo report, and uh, he didn't file that until the 25th of November. And Shelley, uh, so you have to wonder um, what is going on with Bill Shelley, because he had uh, been interviewed by the FBI on November 22nd, and he admitted to seeing Oswald just before lunch, but he explicitly denied seeing him and seeing him ever again. He seen him like 10 minutes before uh, noon. Right. Is what he said. And uh, so when, when, when Bill Shelley and uh, Billy Lovely, they're kind of like Batman and Robin. One, Billy Lovely is a psychic. They were always, sick, they were always together on this particular uh, day. And, uh, so they watched the, uh, the, the motorcade together from the landing, and uh, it was a uh, great discovery made by um, a German film researcher, his uncle, a couple of years ago, that he um, actually saw Shelley um, uh, and Lovelace leaving the, the landing, and they had tried to confuse uh, the accounts of what happened during the initial minute after the assassination. Um, as far as the arrival of uh, Mary Baker and Secretary Gloria Cavalry, we didn't have it clear at all, but you can see clearly in this um, uh, 
story that uh, they're walking down the Elm Street extension before uh, Officer Baker even got to the steps. So they were, um, what they did was they headed down to the first railroad track, now past the West Annex into the third parking lot. And they stayed there briefly. They stayed there, uh, um, they estimated it was a minute or two or just a minute, minute and a half. And so you can really place them there at about two minutes after the assassination. And then we'll figure in later my uh, thinking. And uh, what really testified how uh, uh, from there they, they went into the west entrance on the back dock that had that low ramp. So if you look at the picture, you can see there's a carport um, attached to the west annex facing that rail yard. And there's also like a ramp that leads up to a door right next to the carport that will lead back into the West Annex and back into the building. And so they went through that double door that we in the morning, when we get there, we raised. They went through one of the overhead doors. And they weren't asked whether they went back to the front landing, but, you know, it's a 20 second walk. Once you go through that overhead door, you're right back to the front landing. So they, they more or less made a whole complete circle. And um, so, Oswald had to be telling, was probably telling the truth uh, as an interrogation that uh, he stood around with Bill Shelley. And obviously he's exaggerating a little bit at five or ten minutes, but um, the thing is that in their, even in their Dallas uh, police affidavits, these guys both denied, Shelley and Lovely both denied seeing Oswald. So something was up right from the from the get-go. And um, so you have to ask, I mean, why would they, why would they um, say, think that they had no contact with Oswald on the front landing? What's the big deal? I mean, uh, I mean, I thought about this, and um, <clears throat> now all I came up with is that um, one, one obvious question that they would be asked, even if um, he's walked off, um, if we, which way did you see him go? Did you see him go right or left or straight ahead or down Eastern Street? You know, that's, that's a pretty obvious uh, yeah. follow-up question. And then if they didn't want to get involved with that, that, that tells me that um, that he probably uh, did not uh, take a left and follow it. Well, the official story was that he had gone left a few blocks and just uh, knocked on the door of a city bus. Right. On that bus. But the unofficial story was when he got to the right and uh, uh, went to the Pergola area and a few minutes later a uh, white rambler uh, pulled up to the Elm Street curb and that's where Roger Craig said he heard a shrill, shrill whistle he saw someone look like Oswald run down to the white rambler. Now, did you hear what did you hear what Frazier said a couple of years ago about Oswald leaving the building? Yeah, I saw that, and I don't find that credible. I don't um, either. Because <laughs> he said think, he um, yeah, he came down Houston Street and he watched him watched him walk down and turn on the Main Street, but he did, said he, Oswald didn't come out through the front. Well, I know uh, I think Frazier follows the uh, the research, and um, I think he tries to make things up uh, to go along protecting himself. Right. So, I mean, uh, in any case, it seemed to me that that was uh, part of the reason that they uh, denied even seeing him was 
something called Rockham's Razor, which is um, principle of Hughes' uh, assumptions. That um, it was it was because Oswald actually had actually gone to the right. They need to keep this hidden. And one of William Weston's best articles was um, called the Glade Letters, because uh, it turned out that uh, in 1975. Uh, uh, Kelly was interviewed by a journalist, Elsie Blaze, and uh, he had uh, a tape recorder, he was allowed to take notes, and uh, she was probably pretty sure that um, what Blaze wrote in that article was the truth. And Kelly uh, had told him that the Dallas police had placed him under arrest, and they formally charged him with the murder of the president. Hmm. So this is, uh, Pretty astounding stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it, uh, so, in a way, that kind of makes sense because um, he's, he's a, uh, he actually put out uh, two first day affidavits, which is like a kind of mysterious as to why he would do that. That makes sense because if he was first arrested, then maybe somebody in the department um, got him, you know, I mean, off arrest, and uh, he, he then produced a second affidavit. Right. I don't know how it worked, but I mean, that would make sense to me. Well, that first one, he he just kind of said that he he went back in the building and to call his wife. He didn't mention going going to the tracks with with a uh, love lady or anything. No, they didn't come out until uh, the, uh, <laughs> the the FBI made a bunch of blanket uh, interviews in March. All the employees asked the standard set of questions to all the employees and found started to come out. That's why it kind of came out more during his testimony, which was uh, a few weeks later. Right. So, yeah, we didn't even know that uh, until swing uh, time. And uh, so, yeah, another, another bombshell he also dropped on Glaze was that he uh, said he had been an intelligence officer during the Second World War. And thereafter joined the CIA. Yeah. Which was like, holy mackerel, you know. So, you get a picture of this, um, this, uh, uh humdrum uh, clerk in the, uh, book depository joining the CIA, you know. But what's the story there, you know? And the CIA was formed in 1947. So, it's given the impression that, um, the story is formative years that we can't remember. And, um, you know, this is true. I mean, how many other people were in the CIA? And what was that building used for? You know, was it uh, a cover for uh, drug smuggling or gun, drug, uh, drug or gun or what have you? You know, it's just a cover. This is an innocent looking uh, book uh, depository. So, you gotta wonder. That's all I, all I know. I Grace had some uh, spooky stuff happen to him. Yeah, freaked out by about 20 officers once uh, surrounded his, his apartment or whatever. And uh, he got real scared. And then it took him like two years to contact the uh, HSVA. And they only gave him uh, kind of a form of response. You know? They just didn't look into this at all. Yeah, they're like, yeah, hey, thanks. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just like um, they didn't look into a lot of stuff. But they, again, they just did not um, suspect or want to go into the. Uh, Book depository personnel. Uh, it's really up to the citizenry to do that. So, 
My next section is the uh, little read of the essay, which is um, I entitled Darby on the Loose. This is about Jack Darby. I have uh, three pictures of Jack Darby. Um, he's been uh, kind of missing in action, I guess you'd say. Um, I, I, I give a little history on these uh, uh, pictures. I had, uh, it was too unexpected for a long time. I did. Back when I wrote this essay called The Elevator Escape Room and uh, in the middle of 2010. And uh, uh, when Greg uh, published it and uh, get this email response from uh, the star of Don Woods, when he asked Mr. Paul. And, and in that response, he said, uh, uh, on that end, interesting article, and, and uh, I'm looking at a picture of Don right now. We were all just like, oh my God, who is this? What does he look like? And so Greg passed it on to me. And then I uh, emailed John Woods and I said, well, hey, you know, that's interesting. Uh, could you please share that with me? I'm like, you know, if you do, I'm going to make it public. You know, I'm just going to show it is. So he never got back to me. And then um, about a year later, I was uh, looking through his forum and he was in the discussion. They were talking about this one news photo that I have in my essay. And uh, in this news photo, you can see R.K., Danny R.K., and Bill Kelly in there. And then there's this uh, dirty blonde kind of behind uh, Danny R.K. And, uh, and John Woods basically spelled it right out, like, looking right at Darby. But nobody in the discussion seemed to uh, realize this. You know? I don't know if they were, uh, all, I don't know what the state of mind was, but the topic came up again in a... Uh, Education forum uh, thread discussion. Uh, Pat Spear had a uh, uh, kind of word his um, fellow forum and said <clears throat> that that blonde could be uh, Jack Darby. And uh, so I was uh, last summer I was kind of looking through some old uh, assassination forum uh, archives just to give to anything I could use in my article and for pictures. Right. I, I was looking through these old uh, World War II photos that they posted, and uh, I saw this one guy standing in front of a plane. I said, Keep it, let me look at that, compare that to this news photo. And sure enough, I mean, it was like a dead ringer. The, the, the angle of his, his cheekbone, the, the shape of his nose, and the shape of his ear, this was a dead ringer for a guy who was like, you know, 20 years later, you see him in Dealey Plaza. Looking at him with a uh, full dress, uh, formal uh, soldier portrait um, at the uh, air base in Indiana where he was stationed. And so I said, like, wow, that is absolutely. I just said, so was, I wasn't, I never came out with my suspicions. I always kept that. I just wanted to be super, super sure. Right. And I am super, super sure. This is uh, Jack Darby and Stiris uh, Elf, Grinch, and Worms. And so, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to um, have that settled. Um, I don't think there's going to be any dispute about this. And so, like, over, uh, the thing was, you have this news picture, and you have um, various uh, statements from police as to who they took down to the station when, and you have information for Charlie and RK and all these other guys, but you don't have any information on when Jack Darby was taken in. We do have uh, one statement of um, Walter Potts. When he, he was a guy that, uh, 
that took Doherty's affidavit. And so during the taking of that affidavit, Lee Harvey Oswald was brought in. This was approximately 2 p.m. at um, the homicide office. When Doherty was filling out his uh, affidavit. And if you look at the penmanship here, it's almost like perfect penmanship. It looked like you could teach a penmanship class. I mean, it's, yeah. it's so perfect. And um, you have to look at this very carefully because I'm sorry, I got a quote from me. <laughs> I had already gone back to work and I had gone down to the fifth floor to get some stuff and I heard a shot. It sounded like it was coming from inside the building, but I couldn't tell from where. I went down the first floor and asked the man named Eddie Piper if he heard anything. He said, yes, we heard three shots. I then went back on the sixth floor. So he's saying he went down to the sixth floor. So, I mean, obviously he came from either the sixth or the seventh. But in the seventh, I mean, you and Captain Fritz had been up there, and there was a, a, a completely empty room. There was a um, little storeroom in the corner, in the front corner, and uh, file cabinets and chairs and lamps and whatnot. But I mean, otherwise it was a completely empty room. So Fritz had been up there himself. He used to buy the head on the side, but when uh, he, all, all the affidavits went to him. He would check them at whatever, but at the end of the evening, he would be, be able to view what was said in all the affidavits. So, he was, uh, this is an admission that he had been on the sixth floor right before shoot, the shooting. Right. And, and they never took, uh, they never took him back here. The, 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 what you see up there, um, let's help to let's know what you're doing. And, you know, walking down this and that aisle. You know, did you see uh, anyone over there by the sniper's nest? Whatever. They none of the agency, not the Dallas Police, FBI, Secret Service took him back up there. I mean, this is a it's amazing. A big red flag. Yeah. I mean, there's something going on. I mean, because they, I mean, this guy Oswald, he's pretty much, pretty much vehement. He's saying, "Hey, I didn't do this thing," and. uh so they could have brought Doherty up there and he could have uh, done something completely incriminating, but they just did not do it. And the chance. I mean, there's a big red flag right there. Yeah. And um, then was he, he's basically portraying himself as having like a, an almost spontaneous reaction. And he goes downstairs and he, he, he asks Eddie Piper if he heard anything. And you know, Piper tells him, yes, I heard three shots. Well, if you look at the um, speed of the elevators, this, this really fries dark. Because you've got to measure how fast this elevator is going. Do you have time to do what he said he did? And uh, you get two estimates from, from that. Uh, you get one, one came from Billy Lovelady, which was pretty rough. And uh, in much of time, this was a stopwatch. And he... Um, he said it takes 30 seconds to go from 407 to 401. Uh, he said he timed this himself. He said this on the day of the assassination to the FBI. The FBI conducted uh, time trials uh, the next week. Uh, what they did was uh, they took 10 different routes that uh, Oswald could have uh, traveled from Sniper's Nest and out the building. And some of them involved uh, 
either the elevator or, or maybe being on floor six or somewhere involved the same situation where, where you had to call the elevator up from floor one to floor six. So this was interesting. I, can, you can, uh, I had the document in front of me right here, uh, FBI 105-82555. Oswald HQ file, section 21, page 129. And uh, on, on uh, trials 2 and 3, and on trials 7 and 8, you have the exact same set of conditions, the only exception being one of them is to call the elevator all the way up to 6. The other one is available already on floor 6. And so the difference here in both pairs is uh, 39 seconds. So I think that's a pretty accurate um, measure of how fast the elevator is traveling. It goes five floors in 39 seconds. Right. That's about 7.8 seconds per floor. So if you work that, if you look out, then he had to, uh, the thing was, on Truman Baker, uh, he had a very good measure of Involved in the fight, 
probably other employees involved in the plot. This is really the central uh, um, central argument I make for employee complicity. Yeah, I mean, and they kind of they kind of play him off as like, you know, somewhat slow or. <clears throat> well, yeah, Truly had basically uh, chaperoned him during his um, you know, Secret Service interview and called him mentally retarded. Right. You know, he, he cut off questioning him. He blurted it out, an interesting thing, he had blurted it out that he actually worked on the floor laying crew. Yeah. And then he had, he had gone downstairs in the, uh, in the elevator race with them. So, I mean, uh, Jack was starting to tell too much, and that's when Truly cut off the questioning. And, uh, if you look into his background, it's really kind of bizarre. Um, the place in Indiana where he was um, stationed uh, for a year or so during the war was the, uh, the central collection point for Nazi captured equipment. And they came to fill uh, 42 different, 42 warehouses. Uh, I looked at a YouTube, actually, a half-hour YouTube of this um, stuff that they had there. You see uh, the V2 uh, missiles, uh, Standing on gantries and see Nazi planes flying over the Indiana field. It's kind of wild. So, this is where they would basically uh, take stuff apart and reverse engineer it, you know, not to figure out what the German engineers are doing, because they were um, at least five or seven years ahead of the Allies right. as far as their technology. You know, they had some uh, genius uh, scientists there working on their rocket technology, like blah, blah, and what have you. And uh, so this is a place where, you know, when he has to be stationed, you got to wonder uh, what they're hiding, uh, whether there was some kind of uh, you know, doctrine of uh, you know, soldiers, volunteer soldiers, and whether they had some mental uh, testing going on or whatever. I just, I would not know. They, the Army has to come up with that. Yeah. It was the Army Air Corps that he was in, and it was before it became the Air Force officially. But um, they had to come up with that. But um, there would be, a, you know, there's certainly grounds for um, wondering what what the heck was going on with him. Yeah, because I always thought that was weird, a weird allegation. Because I, I, you know, you wouldn't think that the Army would let in somebody that slow, uh, you know, or, or mentally deficient at, at all, you know, really. Suspicious of them, 
and suspicious about the West elevator. Because the life of everybody, they could not figure out. You know, when Trudy and Baker made up those stairs, the West elevator went down. And uh, no one would own up to it. And truly, all he would say was his best guess was uh, maybe Jack Dowdy had done that, been down. Uh, so, I mean, it occurred to me, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share this revelation. I guess I'll do my lines. I, um, I was getting serious about trying to write a book, put a book together. I took a candy vacation. I went to uh, my old alma mater, the University of Maine. They had, um, they had a set of water bottles there. this is new information but I, I saw it when because uh, I, I did a show last week actually on prayer man and because Stan Dane just put out his new book and so I was talking yeah so I was talking about that last week and I was you know looking through the uh, forums over at ROKC and noticed that somebody had found out that uh, Bill Shelley and Jack Doherty and also this guy Potts that was with the police that was interviewing all these workers had had all gone to Crozier Tech in the early 40s, which is a uh, like, yeah, and they were all there and uh, at the same time in the early 40s. And I believe it was, I think, I can't remember which company Jack Doherty was in. I think he was a company D and Shelly was in company B of the ROTC. And, uh, but yeah, Potts, the guy that had uh, 
interviewed all these uh, depository employees. He was also a former, uh, when, when he came back to Dallas, he worked for a publishing company for a little while before he became a cop. Yeah. So you're saying that Potts was a member of the ROTC at Crozier Tech? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's amazing because, I mean, Kelly was the lieutenant there. I mean, that is... Um, and Doherty was, too. So you got all these guys in the ROTC together at the same school, and then they all go into the military, and then they all end up back in Dallas. Wow. I mean, that's pretty cozy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> and Bill Shelley, at, you know, when he was at uh, Crozier Tech, he was he was part of the rifle team, which I would say pretty probably makes him a pretty good shot. I would say, you know. Oh, and he was on the uh, front landing during the assassination, so I don't think he he was uh, a shooter. Right? No, no. Yeah, I was just saying it's it's just it's. It's an interesting story, anyway, that, you know, that him and Doherty would have been the same school, same time. That, that, is, that is amazing. I've never heard that. And, yeah. Uh, uh, I have to look at that stuff. So. You know, I get into, uh, it's a long section there on Doherty that I, um, I skipped over a lot of stuff. I'm not going to share it now, but it's very detailed. Because uh, I, um, I just, I tried to make the uh, um, proof that uh, it was impossible for him to, what he had stated he did in his affidavit, I tried to make that as rigorous as possible. But a real long-winded um, argument, and plus I get into those uh, two assistant counsels in pretty big, big detail. But I mean, that's sort of for reading me, I have to have enough for talking about it. Um, my next section of um, uh, people familiar with my work will, will certainly recognize as well. The, uh, um, oh, by the way, this is... Um, this particular essay is like, it probably is my greatest hit in a way. I'm like, I had to build a case. But I just bought out the best of what I had before. But, but a third to one athlete is brand new. I never expected to come up with what I come up with. And so as, as this thing builds, you know, this is going to be brand new stuff that you should kill people with that. Right. Well, Richard, Richard, before we get into it, I think this is probably a good time to to call it for the for today, and then we can get into the the, the, the next section fresh next week. That sound All right. okay? That's fine. Yeah. All right. Well, people, I thank Richard Gilbride for joining me again today for part uh, well part one of the Inside Job is actually part two of my interview with him. And I promise he will be back next week, and uh, we're going to get into some, some some of his newer work and uh, some newer revelations. And trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. So, Richard, thank you again for joining me again today. Well, thank you. Yeah. And people, head over to www.tlgpodcast.com for more. Uh, we'll put up links about stuff we talked about, pictures so you can follow along at home. And don't forget to tune in next week. All right, we're going to have Richard back again. We're getting close to the anniversary, people. This is your boy. Thanking Richard Gilbride for coming back on the show. See you all next week. This bitch is in the can. Beamed up this satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace.
right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.